0: Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Arch Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at archstreetpress.org. Today our guest is Cindy Kaplan, co-founder and executive director of the Spoon Foundation, an organization with a mission to improve nutrition and feeding for orphans and vulnerable children so that they may grow and develop to their full potential. Recognizing the unique and urgent nutritional needs of, of children impacted by institutional care. Cindy and her colleagues aim to equip governments and citizen organizations to protect these children from the debilitating yet easily preventable consequences of malnutrition and improper feeding. Cindy co-founded Spoon in 2007. Spoon is the first organization worldwide dedicated to improving nutrition and feeding for children living without permanent parental care. Spoon Foundation programs began in Kazakhstan followed by expansion into India, Haiti, Tajikistan, and the anticipated addition of China and Vietnam. Cindy's work transforming the lives of orphan children has been extensively recognized in Forbes magazine, the Huffington Post, and a litany of other newspapers. And in 2013, Cindy was named an Ashoka Fellow. That's an experience we share. Cindy, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. Thanks for having me. I'd really like to begin at the beginning uh, with your personal motivation to found this organization, and I understand that your adopted son, Jaden, is a very important part of the story. Could you tell us about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, I met Jaden in Kazakhstan uh, when he was six months old in the process of adopting him, and he was about the size of a newborn at that time, grossly underweight, and had been diagnosed with failure to thrive. And when I brought him home, I met another child who had similarly been adopted from Kazakhstan at the same time. And her story was a bit different. She was five years old and she had been diagnosed with severe cerebral palsy. She was um, extremely handicapped, unable to walk, unable to stand up straight. And when her mom brought her home and recognized that what she had was rickets, which is just a vitamin D deficiency, she began giving her vitamins as really the only treatment. And within months, she was upright, walking, running the perimeter of the park. She grew eight inches in the first 10 months home. And so looking at the experience of that little girl and my own son, who nearly lost his life to something such as preventable malnutrition it introduced me to a need firsthand that I could no longer, you know, look away from. And that I quickly came to realize no one else was addressing. And that was nutrition and feeding for children without permanent families.
0: Wow. And so you you also have, do you have some educational background in nutrition and wellness? Because I noticed, I noticed also that in your career, you had had some experience with that. And I wondered if that was an asset that you could bring to this this problem, some background in that area.
1: Right. You know, to be honest, the only relevant experience I had was, um, was, was having the experience personally of being someone who was malnourished. I um, had undiagnosed celiac disease for many years and knew what it felt like to be undernourished and knew what it felt like when I got diagnosed and my body started getting what it needed. It's nothing compared to the experience that these kids have. It's nothing um, relative to how much they are um, deficient and deprived. But that experience taught me firsthand about the connection between what we put in our bodies, what we eat, how we're nourished, and how we feel. And so I became a bit self-taught in the area of nutrition and wellness, but I have no formal background there. We've come since to rely upon on a team of medical experts and technical experts who can bring that to Spoon.
0: And can you talk a little bit about your motivation as a social entrepreneur. I think it's something that is very interesting of obviously on our program, we've talked to many social entrepreneurs and there's such a unique difference between someone who sort of encounters a problem and maybe has a personal experience and then perhaps addresses one person or, or, uh, you know, maybe wants to make a contribution to an organization that's doing something. And then there's this different kind of person of which you are clearly in the latter category that says, you know what, I'm going to go out and change the world in this regard. I'm going to make a major impact on this problem. And tell us uh, if you can, I don't know if you have any insight into uh, what is it that, where does that motivation come from to be, be the change in the world, so to speak?
1: You know, I have to probably credit my parents because they gave me very good modeling. Both of them are entrepreneurs, and so uh, that was my norm growing up. And I, I sort of always thought and didn't think otherwise that if you see a problem or an opportunity and nobody else is chasing it, then that's your responsibility as a citizen of the world to do. Um, I'm also married to an entrepreneur, and prior to Spoon, had been a part of a couple of startups, including, um, including as a founder, as a founding member of the team, and so. I had experienced sort of firsthand the power of having an idea and bringing it to life. Uh, though I have to say, I didn't ever dare uh, to dream this big for Spoon. Uh, it just really started as, as as seeing a seeing something that nobody else I felt like was seeing or recognizing, and I I felt like it wasn't even a choice really that it's something I needed to do.
0: That's great. Well, I wonder if you could take a few minutes and um, let's focus now on the problem. I think this is probably not well understood at all uh, mm-hmm. by the general public. And of course, mm-hmm. that's part of what your work is. But as I understand it, you've really put your finger on a very unique element of malnutrition. I think I think people understand that generally that there's a problem with nutrition in many parts of the world. But what you're really focusing on is a, is a different experience that that children have when they're in an institutional setting that makes their um, experience much worse and puts them at much greater risk. I wonder if you could uh, paint a picture of that for our listeners.
1: Sure. And I think it's a combination of these kids being at increased risk and then that being compounded by the fact that they're generally not being reached by most global malnutrition and hunger efforts. So, so right now there is a really significant global effort to end malnutrition for children, and um, that is being supported by many governments and many INGOs and, and IOs around the world but they tend to focus on community-based approaches, which is reaching children through their families. So kids without families are being inadvertently left out. And, and m- much of the time that is sort of inadvertent, but sometimes it's purposeful. And that's because there's also simultaneously a very large deinstitutionalization movement happening. And that means a uh, organizations and, and countries working to end the institutionalization of children, which nobody could argue against. It's a, a orphanage or institution is no place to grow up. And there's plenty of research documenting that. Um, so essentially, they've been encouraging and pretty much mandating a lot of these. the large institutional donors have been mandating that dollars not be spent in orphanages, sort of out of a fear that um, orphanages will get better and they will be a magnet for the community, for children in the community. And that's being done for good global policy reasons, but the consequence is really devastating for the millions of kids who are still living in these institutions. And we don't actually have a number because, uh, nobody has been tracking how many kids are living in institutional care. I think the last count was in 1985 and, um, it was well over 10 million. Estimates are as high as 50 or 60 million. So for kids who are living in orphanages right now, they're generally not being reached by most any kind of humanitarian um, or uh, global programs. And their own countries oftentimes um, have, have sort of put them away as well and haven't paid a lot of attention to them or what's going on with them. The I- yeah, go ahead please. I was
0: going to say I think it's I think it's very hard for people to understand um the extraordinary impact that uh malnutrition can have on a child's early development and you you really have um just visualized this so well in several presentations that I've watched and um, it's something that you, you see the pictures and it, it's very graphic, but I wonder if you could just point out a few of these things, the, the physical and mental effects of malnutrition on a very young child in terms of stunting and in terms of their um, you know, ability to thrive. And I wonder if you could comment also on to what extent is it reversible? Is, is there a point at which it's really too late and this child's going to be um, disabled in, in some respect for the rest of their lives? Or is there, you know, what what's the point of no return in that process? I'm just curious what your findings mm-hmm. are.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it looks really graphic and really obvious, as you stated, and sometimes it doesn't. Because generally kids stop growing tall before they stop growing wide. So one of the first indicators of chronic malnutrition is stunting, which is that phenomenon of, of you know, stopping to grow in height. And so you might go into an orphanage as we did in the beginning and see kids who look to us generally healthy until we recognize how old they are. Right. And then realize that it's not necessarily that they are chubby and well nourished, but that they're distributing whatever weight they have up. At- over sort of a shorter frame of body, and it makes them look like they're doing better than they are. Um, so, so stunting is a phenomenon we see a lot, as well as wasting, which is um, a measure of, of weight for height and weight for age, um, being underweight. And Those are things that we see a lot in these um, institutions, as well as Um, micronutrient deficiencies, which is a lack of vitamins and minerals, um, which are really critical for early brain development. And when kids don't get those, it really impacts their cognitive functioning and ability to develop normally, not just sort of in the day-to-day when they're little, but even when they're much older. And so there've actually been studies that show that if kids don't get the iron they need, for example, before age two, that even if it's repleted at age three, four, five, that their school performance will not be as strong and that they may not be as successful in holding a job or having relationships as adults. So we, We don't ever like to give up on kids and think that it's too late. I think at every point in the process, it's worthwhile intervening. Um, Being adequately nourished helps to fight infection. So it keeps kids healthier and keeps them out of that sort of cycle of getting unhealthy. And then when you're unhealthy, you don't have an appetite and you're not able to eat and absorb nutrition that way. It's never sort of too late, I think, in, in terms of being able to promote their energy level and being able to... You know, pay attention and engage with others and protect their protect their health. But unfortunately, it's some of the impacts of early malnutrition, many of them that are critical are not reversible through proper nutrition later on, which is why we really focus on reaching children, um, ideally before age three or five.
0: Wow. Wow. So very serious problem with long-term consequences if it's not managed and uh, difficult to reverse if it's not caught early. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a real, I have a question that I'm sure maybe some listeners may be wondering, which is in these orphanages, how much of this is uh, conscious neglect, if I can put it that way, you know, a sense of not caring about the uh, well-being of these children versus just ignorance of of, of the process that's going on and not, not understanding the damage that they're doing. I wonder if you have a perspective on that.
1: Yeah, our staff has been to dozens of orphanages and like institutions in seven, eight countries throughout Central Asia and in the Americas, and we have never experienced that it's an outcome of the people they're not caring about the kids. Generally, um, the staff in these institutions care, deep, care deeply about the kids. It's a lack of education. It's a lack of resource. Um, it's a lack of just focus on an issue that I think generally hasn't been appreciated as far as the importance it can have on these children's development and on their health. And I think what's really important to note is, um, you had mentioned in the beginning, the risk for these kids. We do believe that they're at uh much greater risk than their counterparts in the communities who live with families because they most likely didn't get uh, great prenatal care which might be common among um among other children who are coming from deprived situations in the communities but they also uh, especially if they were abandoned early in their life didn't benefit from breastfeeding and then the stress of being in a situation where you don't have a constant caregiver um, can really impact your body's ability to metabolize nutrition. So it's not just what you're fed or what, what you take in, but it's your body's ability to utilize that to promote growth and healthy development, which is dependent also on um, having attachments and having relationships with caregivers. That's so critical for these kids. And then they tend to get fed in sort of more institutional ways. And again, this isn't necessarily the result of people feeding them who don't care, but maybe them not really knowing and appreciating the importance of feeding them in certain ways. We, we see particularly kids with disabilities suffering in these institutions. And in, in those cases, sometimes it is that um, their lives are just not quite as valued as kids who are more typically developing, and they're not getting what they need because the people caring for them don't really understand what they can grow to be.
0: Now, here's a question that I have about working across so many diverse cultures and I wonder how you approach this because I'm sure some of the issues that you confront have to do with how you translate some of these concerns into other languages and cultures and how people receive the education or criticism or guidance if I can put it that way Mm -hmm. and I wonder um, how do you approach that do you approach that with staff by developing staff in country who are part of the culture or uh, do you have, uh, you know, staff that actually come in as outsiders but are trained in in that cross-cultural communication um, required to get people to change their approach? And it's very encouraging, I have to say, to hear that 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 basically this is a problem of ignorance and not of mm-hmm. willful neglect, which is probably a much harder thing to to change.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think for us the key has been partnering with local experts or governments or professionals or child welfare organizations on the ground in the countries where we work from the very beginning so we have a three-step process and the first step is assessment before we want to come up with any solutions we need to make sure we understand the problem because it does vary um, between countries um, and even between institutions in some cases in certain countries Um, sometimes it's a matter of um, you know, not getting certain micronutrient deficiencies from their diets. Sometimes it has more to do with feeding practices and the food being delivered in such a way that kids can't really take it in and absorb it. Sometimes it has to do with food preparation or hygiene. Um, and poor hygiene can, uh, poor hygiene can lead to the development of parasites, which if you have parasites, it doesn't matter what you're taking in, you're, you're extracting it so, so quickly from your body that you can't absorb. So we start with an assessment and in that process work with Locals, so that they are helping us to both define the problem and the solution. Um, It's definitely not our job to come in and criticize. It's our job to work with them to figure out what it is that we can do better for the kids. And then after assessing, um, we work with them to develop those solutions, which usually are um, developing nutrition screening systems to make sure that there's a system in place to catch the kids who are falling through the cracks and a way for, for the folks who are caring for them to know what to do. Next or training, um, and and our training approach is training of the trainer. So as you as you suggested, we work with um, local folks to train them to build their capacity, and then they they go ahead and train the caregivers and others in the country.
0: That's great. So that makes it uh, easier to digest the guidance, if I can use the metaphor.
1: Um, exactly.
0: But, <laughs> but, um, the uh, so such such powerful and important work, and um, and I wonder about well one thing I wanted to just to illustrate an example of this which I think is so uh, I found it to be very surprising and um, interesting and disturbing at all at the same time was just sort of looking at things that you would imagine somebody are well intentioned like you know feeding a child with a with a big spoon as an example mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so you're thinking like boy here I'm trying to really get this nourishment into the child I'll use a big spoon and it turns out that 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 doesn't work because the child isn't capable of, uh, you know, consuming that or something as simple as, you know, spooning from behind the child as opposed to making eye contact and, and you know, observing how it's going down. Um, there just must be such a range of, of, of um, problems that you've encountered. I wonder if you could just share a couple of stories uh, along those lines of um, simple yet yet powerful things that you've been able to do to help solve this problem.
1: Sure. Absolutely. And it really is, I think a matter of a lot of little things that can add up to be something bigger. Um, and it's cracking it away. It's chipping away at it sort of little, uh, bits at a time, or we say spoonful by spoonful. And one, um, one example was in our work in India, where we saw rates of anemia, um, that were extremely high. And that's true overall for India, but we saw them much higher among kids and institutions than in the general public. And we observed that there was um, a feeding practice there of transitioning kids off of formula very young and a perception um, by the doctor who was directing the caregivers to do this, that keeping kids on formula could create um, a problem with diarrhea. Ah. And what we know to be true is that the buffalo's milk or cow's milk that, that they were transitioning onto at maybe two or three months of age, um, their little bodies aren't ready um, for that. And they don't, they don't have the lining in their intestine to be able to digest that. And it and actually kind of beats up their insides and can cause iron bleeds, which, which is a major cause of anemia. And so um, we, we had to sort of negotiate and say, OK, let's push back. Um, the introduction to milk, you know, another month and then another month and um, collect data on the kids and diarrhea to be able to demonstrate that this wasn't going to lead to an increase in diarrhea and will actually protect the health of the kids. And and, and throughout that process, teach them how to test their hemoglobins, which is an indicator of, of anemia, um, to see that that this is something that will actually support the health of their kids, which is what they really want to. You know, it would be a different story if they didn't have clean water, of course, but in this case, they did. So that's one small example. Another one that has to do with with diet is um, in many of the cultures where we work, it's very common practice to give children tea, and tea contains a chemical um, that actually inhibits the absorption of nutrients. So if you're giving kids a nutritious meal, but then you give them tea, it actually works against them from being able to take the vitamins and minerals from their food and absorb them. And we know we're not going to change the the practice of giving kids tea, but changing the timing and giving the tea one hour or one before or one hour after the meal. Um, makes a big difference. Same with soaking um, beans and rice, for example. If you soak grains and legumes for a period of time before you cook them, it strips some of the chemicals that that are in them that that also inhibit absorption of nutrients. So it's little things like that that can make a huge difference.
0: That's remarkable. Does does that have the same impact on adults, or is that problem limited to child the consumption of tea? um, being a barrier to absorbing nutrients. So I'm just that's, curious.
1: That's a good question. I believe it's universal for everyone, it, but it's again, during childhood that these nutrients are most critical for impact right. brain development after age five, our, our brain is, you know, pretty much set up how it's going to be. And so it has less of an impact on us as adults than it does as children.
0: That's fascinating. I, um, so I know you have a big part of what you do is advocacy, and I wonder if you could tell us um, in your advocacy work, what are the major focal points of that? And um, and also uh, what parts of the system is it targeted at? Are you, is it mostly at the government entities or are you also working with the citizen sector? How does that
1: work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's with both sectors. And I think our advocacy work changes depending on the sector we're talking to. So. Um, in the in the nutrition sector, for example, we need to advocate for the inclusion of children with disabilities and the inclusion of children living without permanent families in global efforts to end malnutrition and in, in, and at the national scale as well that's um, we we think sort of the lower hanging fruit because these are organizations and funders who have already prioritized this and this is a probably the you know, one of the most marginalized uh, populations of children and sometimes and we have found that generally similar to how the countries feel and how the caregivers feel. It's not that that these organizations and sectors don't care about these kids. It's just that maybe they were overlooked um, in in their planning efforts because it's not where the majority of kids are. Um, So that's an important part of our advocacy work. I think that the most critical thing for us has been to have evidence And when we started, you know, it was the experience of these two children, my own and and my co-founder's daughter, who I talked about earlier, uh, that that led us to believe there's a problem here. And we surveyed other adoptive parents, but we knew that wasn't going to convince anyone to change anything. And so the first thing we did was to do a study in Kazakhstan. um, And we were able to, working with the locals there who were incredibly open and proactive, document rates of malnutrition in the institutions that were startling and much higher than kids living in the general population. And it was that data that that caught the attention of the Ministry of Health and um, pretty much immediately prompted them to change their national policy for nutrition standard and diet in all of the baby homes countrywide. And we have found that that data is really Powerful, and we're leveraging that same data and now data that we've been able to since collect in other Central Asian countries and in Southeast Asian countries to gain the attention of both uh, governments locally and of the uh, citizen sector to say we've got to do something about this now.
0: Where does deinstitutionalization fit in your in your advocacy advocacy work? Do you is that is that something that you try to convince um, governments to do or continue. How, how does how do you look at that at this point?
1: Yeah, I think our approach to deinstitutionalization is is a little bit different. Um, we take, in some ways, a backdoor in, which can be compelling because. Nutrition is not a very threatening issue. It's sort of a benign entry point. And we're able to work with our government partners and our local NGO partners and and get in the door and develop a relationship and develop trust and show them that kids who have adequate nutrition and nurture, the combination is critical there and they need both. But kids with adequate nutrition and nurture are likely to be healthier and to develop more normally. And so... um, We have found that especially with international adoption on the steep decline, that the best chance for the kids who are currently in institutions to get out is for them to be somewhat healthy. That locally um, and even internationally for the bit of international adoption that does exist, children who are healthier and more developmentally on track are more likely to be placed with a family or reunified with their biological families. Um, We also support deinstitutionalization by equipping Foster families and adoptive families who might take these kids in on understanding their specific and unique feeding and nutrition needs so that they're more likely to have successful placements if if parents adopt children who hoard food or have food aversions or are severely anemic, which impacts their ability actually to bond and form attachments, that's going to really impact the success of a placement. And we're looking at now how that translates back to kids in our own foster care system here. Um, Lastly, I think we are, are working to preserve families by ensuring that professionals in the countries where we work are equipped with knowledge on how to feed kids with disabilities because kids with disabilities are often sort of the first to be um, exited into institutionalized care, especially in post-Soviet countries. So to make sure that locally they know how to feed these kids, which is, you know, it, it, if you're a parent, you know that the bulk of what you do with a little child is feed them and and try to get them to sleep. And with a child with disabilities, that's that's magnified. So make sure that they know how to care with their kids so they don't need to part with them in the first place.
0: Wow, very very important work. I um I wanted to ask you to comment switching gears a little bit to your social entrepreneur hat, and talk a little bit about the, tra- the trajectory of your organizational development. You started, you founded the organization in 2007, my understanding is, so here you are, you know, um, many years later. And if you could just tell us what were some of the critical development points in your organization, you know, uh, were there breakthroughs, was there, um, points at which you grew rapidly and, um, are there obstacles that you've had to overcome in that process?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we like to think that maybe we're in our pre-adolescence or adolescence right now, and hope so because we've we've grown up a lot and evolved a lot. But we there's so much more to do. Um, I would say sort of the first chapter was uh, developing our cultural fluency and our fluency in international development and nutrition and bringing on a a team of experts who could compensate for what, as as just passionate parents, we didn't have and could help ensure that we were developing a model that was really evidence-based and rooted in good global practice. Um, So bringing on the right team Um, from the beginning and when we couldn't afford them as as volunteers and, um, and, you know, symbols of the strength of our uh, organization and our model was really important in building our credibility. I think the second piece was being able to do a pilot and demonstrate that we had a model that was going to be successful and scalable and could be sustainable and you know I live in Portland Oregon so that word is really overused here <laughs> but what we mean by that is you know that we could we could figure out you know what the problem was through our assessment and we could develop solutions and then we could build the capacity of locals to scale those solutions within the country and sustain them over time and really kind of as an organization pull back and become just a, a technical resource for them as needed. Um, so I think having a successful pilot and and building a model that we knew could rep- replicate was was very critical, and um, I think now we're in the stage where we are replicating that and um, adapting these these tools and these programs to be implemented in different kinds of settings. So not just in institutional care, but also in in foster care, and um, and even um, to benefit children in families with disabilities, and then also implementing in in different countries and different environments and again as I said it it, I think it took us some years before we asked well how is this relevant here how is this relevant in our own backyard where there are so many kids who are living in foster care um, which can in many ways feel like institutional care depending on the the county where there are a lot of kids and kids shifting caregivers all the time. And
0: do do you does your U.S. team spend a lot of time traveling uh, these days, or do you do some of this through remote communications? Do you have Mm -hmm. uh, people that you hire in-country? How does that part work?
1: That's a great question, and I think that also um, is symbolic of a shift. When we first started, we actually had a different... We were the Kazakhstan Orphan Nutrition Initiative, KONI, which is the, the Russian word for horse, which is a powerful symbol there. And that's there. Were, that's where we set our sights for the first um, year. And um, we actually developed our own NGO and a staff person in Kazakhstan, um, which was important for fundraising purposes to be able to raise money from local donors. And generally, we found that donors, unfortunately, outside of Kazakhstan didn't care very much about that country. We started in a pretty difficult place that most people couldn't produce. And didn't know outside of the movie Borat, um, right? But uh, you know, we we recognize as we continue to grow that this is not how we're going to have the most impact as an organization. That we're one small one one small group, and we were the first ever to address this issue. And now seven years later, we are still the only um, focusing on this specific issue for this group of kids. And so the way to make an impact is to work through local partners. And um, and so while we still have um, a staff person and an NGO in Kazakhstan, um, we have not replicated that model elsewhere. Instead, we've worked through either international partners who have their own staff on the ground in multiple countries or local partners who, um, who have set up shop and are doing really meaningful work on the ground in the countries where we work.
0: That's so great. So that's uh, really leveraging existing assets and not Uh, replicating or building things that uh, are already there and can be engaged in essence.
1: Exactly. And to answer your question, we do have staff who have quite a few frequent flyer miles because, (laughs) you know, while we oftentimes start as the catalyst and try to get governments and organizations to pay attention to this issue, we then sort of back up and play more of a technical support role. So in the beginning, when we're doing the assessments and we're, when we're developing and piloting the solutions, we need to be there a little bit more. But over time, uh, our presence in country um, is, is really not as, as heavily needed by design.
0: Sure, sure. And also the technology avails you of some ability to interact without being there in person, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Right. So, tell, tell us about your vision now for the future of the organization. Where do you see Spoon in five years?
1: Mm-hmm. And I want to just come back real quickly to what you said about technology because it reminded me of uh, of something that we're going to be trying soon uh, with a training program, which is leveraging um, leveraging our World Wide Web to um, assist in, in training and using things like iPads to videotape um, you know, caregivers when they're feeding kids and being able to bring that footage back here and analyze it and give feedback to caregivers on the ground based on what we see in in, in real time or close to real time. And I think that, that when we project ahead five years is in some ways a reflection of what's to come is how can we continue to work um, cost effectively um, and virtually to support uh, organizations and governments all over the world in paying attention to this issue and addressing it. And so I think the first piece is always going to be awareness for us. So continuing, I think in the next five years, um, we hope that, that malnutrition and feeding for children deprived of parental care will be on everybody's radar and that, that global organizations will be looking at the issue and that countries will be looking at the issue and that we will be actively working to replicate the programs that we have now to ensure that all countries where this um, this is an issue, where there are kids living without permanent families, have the resources they need to be protecting the health of these kids so they have a, a chance at developing normally.
0: Awesome. Such a great vision. Um, Cindy, we're coming towards the end of our time together, and many people that listen to this program are studying social entrepreneurship and perhaps planning their own ventures. Um, in the future. And uh, so here you are with uh, seven years of experience in launching a social venture. And um, I'd love to ask for your advice and guidance for people who may be beginning uh, this journey. Um, it's always easy. I always like to say, you know, uh, when I'm talking to people and they recognize that, you know, in retrospect, it's sort of like the highlights video, you know, uh, all the air balls and the miss foul shots are, are, uh, are cut out of the tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but if you could share with us a little bit of, um, you know, how you've uh, developed the motivation to persist, um, how you encounter uh, uh, problems and, and offer some words of, uh, you know, perhaps wisdom and motivation for somebody starting uh, their journey. You know, uh, we all have things that uh, perhaps if we had known beforehand would have saved us some some time, uh, some tears perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, th- share a little bit of your, your thoughts being in the place in the journey now that you are
1: yeah I think that those that those missed shots and foul balls it's like you said they're inevitable and I think the key is really um is really accepting them and learning to anticipate them. And I think the more practice that we have um making mistakes or with things going wrong and recognizing that as a pattern that this is part of the process. It's not an exception but it's part of the process and um And that's okay because, you know, a three point shot's coming or, you know, um, a new teammate who's, who's going to, you know, bring you to the next level is coming. Um, that, that's the inevitable I think peaks and valleys of running an organization and growing an organization. And I think the earlier, um, in the process that you can recognize that and accept that as part of the process and not get as flummoxed when things don't go well, and maybe not get quite as high when things go really well, knowing <laughs> that this is also part of part of the trend and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to come down a little bit. Um, I think that's, that's been very critical. And so the process itself isn't going to be steady, but I think the steadier that we can be as the visionaries and the leaders of the organization, the steadier it's going to feel for the organization itself. Um, And I I would just say, uh, you know, the word no um, and impossible, those are all going to be, uh, you know, par for the course and things that we'll hear. And so I think it's really important to have a strong mission and to be flexible in, in interpretation of that mission as the environment around us changes, but um, to also surround yourself with with people who believe heavily in what you're doing and to keep your sights set on that and, uh, and to persist. I think persistence uh, is probably the most important part. <laughs>
0: Amen. Amen. Terrific yes. advice. Terrific advice. I have to say I concur with everything you said. Oh, good. So, <laughs>
1: That's validating.
0: Yes, yes, Getting
1: validation is always great.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, Cindy, for people who want to support the work of Spoon, the best way to find you would be on your website, which is spoonfoundation.org. Is that correct? Exactly. exactly. And we'll make sure to put up uh, links when we put up the podcast. Is there anywhere else where people should learn about what you do?
1: Probably online is the best, um, and I should caution that we are in the process of a name change to Spoon International, and so um, we will still be found through Spoon Foundation, but that's that may be another name that you'll hear um, uh, when you're looking for us. And 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 uh, I hope that people will reach out because, um, as I said, this is this is a an issue that's not on a lot of folks' radars, and these are kids that are not uh, on a lot of people's minds. And so the more that you know, anyone rallies behind them, um, and around them, I think that the bigger difference that we can make.
0: Well, Cindy, thank you so much for your inspiring work and your leadership in this area and for spending time with us today. And I, I hope that we'll uh, have a chance to catch up with you again in the future and see where you are. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. On behalf of our producers and sponsors, Arch Street Press, Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, visit us at archstreetpress.org.